The Ministry Network podcast is sponsored by Westminster Theological Seminary. You may be wondering, what's it like to study at Westminster? I had the chance to ask Dr. Stephen Nichols this question. Dr. Nichols is a graduate of Westminster, Chief Academic Officer at Ligonier Ministries, and the President of Reformation Bible College. This is what he had to say. Well, it's a wonderful place. I'd always held Westminster up on a pedestal, and the years that I spent there were just delightful years. I'm really glad that it's a part of who I am. You too can become a graduate of Westminster by enrolling in one of our degree programs, like our Masters of Divinity, now offered online for the very first time. To learn more, visit ministrynetwork.com forward slash degree. Now, on to our episode. Hi, and welcome to the Ministry Network podcast. I'm your host, James Baird. Today, you'll hear from Pastor Paul Washer, noted missionary, preacher, and conference speaker. He'll share with us his journey into ministry and his principles for convictional leadership. Don't forget to visit ministrynetwork.com to join our online community where you can discuss this episode with other Christians and get access to exclusive book discounts. Now, let's hear from Pastor Washer. Thank you so much for joining us here on Ministry Network. Well, it's my privilege. Would you mind sharing with us your journey into Christian ministry? I was raised, my grandfather and grandmother were some of the first missionaries to Manaus, Brazil. They were Reformed, Baptistic. I'm sure that had an impact. My mother was Croatian. Her parents came over through Ellis Island, and she was one of the few believers in her family. Her mother was actually persecuted for the faith. She saw her mother suffer, family members and everything else. So I was around that a lot. And when I was nine, I made something of a profession of faith. But it was just immediately, you know, being baptized, thrown into something, nothing. I understood nothing. When I finally got to college, I was a very rebellious person. I noticed a group of young men that lived in the apartment complex where I was, and they just seemed to be so clean. And eventually it was through their testimony and their witnessing that I became a Christian. When I was a little boy, I would wake up at night crying because I would have this strange impression that I had to preach. I would say, I'll be a Christian as long as you don't make me preach, because that was the one thing that I didn't want to do. It was almost like surrendering to Christ unto salvation was surrendering also unto service. And I found myself quickly doing evangelism the very next day. There was kind of a speaker's area at the University of Texas. And, you know, I remember the second day after I was converted, walking by and hearing a guy just really tearing into Christianity. And I remember going through the crowd and confronting him, you know, and I knew nothing. I couldn't even find the book of Philippians, but I knew that Christ was real. Some say I grew rather fast, but I can say that without boasting because I was surrounded by very, very godly, radical young men who would do anything to witness at any time. And they had such an impact on my life. And then decided I'd go to seminary. You know, I didn't know that much. It was a Baptist seminary, but it was really had some liberal leanings. There was nothing of reform or anything in it. And I almost thought, man, I must not be qualified for the ministry because I just couldn't understand a lot of the things that were being taught until I found out it was basically German philosophy. <laughs> Seemed like I'd do okay with the Bible, but when we got into all the other stuff, you know. So when I graduated from there, God had worked in His providence through a family member of mine to introduce me to the country of Peru. 
And I basically, to make a long story short, was sent out by a small little Baptist church in the middle of a cornfield by myself to go work with an old, what we used to call Sovereign Grace. These old preachers that were Sovereign Grace preachers back when it wasn't very cool to be a Sovereign Grace preacher. And I was sent there to work with him in Peru and spent 10 years there. When I became a Christian, I went to a church that was very given to prayer and very given to preacher. To this day, I've never met anyone. He's gone on to be with the Lord, but I never met anyone with such power, such power in the pulpit. Sometimes he would preach and it would be terrifying. And those men introduced me to, whether it was E.M. Bounds or George Mueller or all these men of prayer, they were by no means what you would call charismatic, but they were kind of the old school where they believed that everything, everything was a result of the power of God, and they believed in prayer, of the prayer closet, and all those types of things, and that had a tremendous impact on my life. I mentioned George Mueller, but I was given the autobiography of George Mueller, the shorter volume, that I still have. It has sat here now for 35 years. This is the same book, and you can see the pages are all yellow, and Then when I was in Peru at an early stage, there was a Peruvian pastor there who had been really involved in the Catholic Church and was converted and then went to Germany thinking, you know, that's where he's going to learn the Bible because Martin Luther was from there. And he just fell into a liberal seminary. He came back and he started a seminary in Peru. He asked me, since I knew a little Greek, he asked me if I would help. So But this was the course. The first semester, you read through the entire Bible. You wrote a summary of every chapter, and you wrote out every question you had for that chapter, and then you came to class, and you you looked for answers. That was the first semester. And so teaching it, I ended up sometimes spending eight to ten hours a day because I, I had to be able to look at any text and be able to answer their questions. You know, in seminary, we were given to studying a lot of German theologians, different things like that. And so I literally had to live in the scriptures. And the next semester was read the entire New Testament over that semester, every chapter, and do more intensive work. And then, you know, and it just went on. It was just scripture, scripture. We studied nothing but scripture. There wasn't any, you know, subordinate standard. There wasn't anything. And that can be kind of dangerous. But Yeah, I remember reading through the first five books of the Bible and trembling. Uh, I would preach on the streets and preach on the streets, and there was just something in the message that so bothered me. It was the standard middle-of-the-road evangelical message with the invitation to pray the prayer and do all these different things, and it just didn't seem it was right. And I didn't have any Reformed books. I didn't have anything. It just didn't seem right. And so I really started studying the Scriptures on the Gospel A book called Today's Evangelism fell into my hands, and I read that book, and I remember I was on this old, I lived in this old building in Peru, and this old wooden floor, dirty wooden floor, and I remember putting my face in the floor, just before God, weeping and saying, God, you know, I promise, if if there was such fear, I said, God, you know, if you don't kill me, if you promise, you won't kill me. I promise to never preach the gospel that way again. I came across the passage that uh, it pleased the Lord to crush him. I started looking at it, looking at it, and I said, it pleased God to crush the Messiah. And then I started looking and looking, and I came to this realization that what saves us was not, you know, so much the Romans beat up Jesus, but that the wrath of Almighty God fell upon his own son. And I had never heard that. 
Now, th this will tell you the state of evangelicalism. I had never heard that. I, di I didn't ever even hear it in seminary. And it terrified me. And fortunately, there were some people who started giving me books, and I started realizing. And this has literally been the epicenter of my entire ministry my whole life. You know, talking about the cross, what really happened there. The bearing of sin, the bearing of the curse, the wrath of God. I can tell you, you know, I've preached all over the world. I can't tell you how many Christians have come up to me after me preaching on Christ being crushed by the wrath of God, who have come up to me with tears and saying, I've been a Christian for 15 years, 30 years. I've trusted in the death of Christ. But I used to sit there, they would say, and figure out how does the fact that Jesus got nailed to a tree pay for my sins? And I started realizing even evangelicals are not preaching this. And and then I started on a long journey. It's been 25 years, and sometimes I'll spend 10 hours a day. I took every verse that I could find in the Bible that had to deal with the gospel from the pre-existence of Christ unto his seat again as the God-man and Lord of all. I've researched every text in Greek and Hebrew, and I have then tried to trace it from 2nd century to Martin Lloyd-Jones. And what's so amazing is that in the gospel of the reformers, that, you know, the cross is the final answer. It is the answer to the great dilemma. How can God's attributes be reconciled in the pardoning of wicked men? And if you go back to the ancient 16th century and, and on up, Spurgeon, all of them, they wouldn't preach the gospel without dealing with that topic. That the great question of all questions is, how can God be just and justify wicked men? That's why in the cross, the full revelation of God is revealed, because there we see how God can be that and do that. There's so many things in which people contributed. Someone sent me this big, it's probably before you were born, one of these big kind of video things you put in a little uh, big slot. And I had a little TV in Peru about that big with one of those little video player things. I, I put it in. I started watching the guy, and I remember I was in a chair, and I was seated like this, and then Within a few minutes, I was like this, and then I was like this, and then I remember getting down on my, on my knees, sometimes looking up at the guy preaching, and, but most of the time just laying on my face and listening. And uh, it was, uh, wow. If there's anything good in me that's happened with the gospel and preaching, I owe so much of it to the holiness of God and R.C. Sproul. What a gift. I finished that with a complete, I mean, everything depends on the attributes of God. Your understanding of God's character. That's where it all begins. Seeing God like that, then everything starts falling into place. The sin of man, the cross of Christ, judgment, everything. It really doesn't make any sense. It's all inconsistent until you understand who God is. I remember one time getting to go down there and where, you know, down in R.C. Sproul's area, I was going to teach down there or something. It was the biggest moment. Of, I thought, man, I'm going to meet this guy, you know, and he got sick <laughs> and I didn't. <laughs> and so, but, you know, that's what young people need to see. There's a balance. You see, the scriptures are the standards. You go to whatever confession that we hold to, the scriptures are the standard. Everything else is a subordinate standard. But I spend a lot of time studying the scriptures. I may not be smart, but I spend a lot of time studying the scriptures. But I come across these young men, you know, and 
And I'll talk about studying the scriptures and, you know, the reformers and the confessions and all these different things. And they go, yeah, but I, I just want the Bible. And the Bible's the only thing that's inspired and inerrant. And I said, yeah, the Bible is inspired and inerrant. And it's the only book. The problem is your interpretation isn't inspired or inerrant. And one of the greatest principles of hermeneutics that I think is left out is that we do our theology in the context of the church. If everybody's in agreement for 2,000 years and you disagree with them, guess who's probably wrong? <laughs> you know, so I've gleaned so much. If I could turn this computer around, you'd see books over there, books over here, and I use them. Can you describe the role of conviction in your ministry? When you say conviction, and you say this man is a, a man of conviction, people are so wrong about what that means, like or a great man of faith, or that man loves God you know, tremendously. When you say he's a great man of conviction or he preaches conviction, you think of some strength of character. That's what people think of, when actually it's the opposite. It's always the opposite. It's not the strongest man, it's the weakest man. Conviction comes from believing the Bible's true and depending upon it. But that is the result of seeing yourself as untrustworthy, weak, foolish, ignorant, all the things that you would want to say. And so if you look at yourself as you are, that wisdom was not born with you, wisdom will not die with you, apart from God's word, you're a fool. You have nothing. Then that causes you to cling to God's word. Do you see? Let me give you some examples. You see a man who just tenaciously clings to the Lord, and you think, man, what willpower, what discipline? No, not at all. One time, I know this is going to sound funny, but I attempted to learn how to surf when I was a young man and uh, in Peru. I went out on a red flag day, which is very dangerous. I just thought it was a pretty flag. I didn't know that. <laughs> I got out there, and I got really, really scared, and then I heard someone behind me, and it was a man a little bit older than me on a boogie board, and his eyes were as big as saucers, and he was terrified. And he was drowning. He was scared. And I was going to go over and grab him. And then I realized if I go over there, he's going to grab me and drown me. Now, I was twice the size of him back then, and I could fight pretty good. There's no way that guy could take me on the beach. But he had killed me. So I called about six other surfers, seven surfers that I saw, and I said, please come over here and help. And they did. And it took them a half hour to get that man to the beach. And they were terrified. Now, they were strong, young surfers. Why were they scared of this little man? That man knew he was going to die. He knew if he did not grab a hold of someone stronger than himself, he was dead. He had no hope. So he would have grabbed two or three of those men and drowned them. Do you see the strength of his weakness? He recognized he had nothing. And that's what caused him to cling. So people think, wow, that guy really clings to the Lord. He's so disciplined. Or he's, no, no, he's so fearful. He's so weak. He's had a view of his weakness, and he's terrified to do anything other than what he at least sees is commanded in Scripture. He's terrified to trust in his own intellect or academics or anything because he sees he has none. And even if he does have it, it amounts to nothing in the kingdom of heaven. So it's a total recognition. I have no wisdom apart from the Word of God. I have no spiritual strength apart from the Holy Spirit. I am nothing. There's only one hero in this story, and it's Jesus Christ. And we desperately need to cling to him. It's the same way when you see a man who loves his wife in an unusual fashion. Automatically, we're so prone to error. We think, what a great man. 
I mean, he loves his wife so much. What a great man. Well, maybe he's not great at all. Maybe he just has a great wife. And the greatness, the excellency, the virtue of his wife draws out his affections. And you see someone who they say, well, they love God so much. No, they're not a great lover of God. They've just seen more of God than you have. What they've seen of God, his excellencies, his virtues, draws out their affections. I never want devotion or conviction or love for God to be seen as something that occurs in an excellent man. But it occurs in a man who, through Scripture and through his own experience, realizes, I'm nothing. I'm fodder for hell apart from the grace of God. And I would deny him in a second apart from the grace of God. It's him. And that's why the more we study the revelation of God's person, particularly in the cross of Christ, in the person and cross of Christ, that our affections are going to grow, our convictions are going to grow. That, that's where growth comes from. And as our experience of the Lord changes us, it makes us into something foreign to this world and inevitably creates tension and opposition. So the more successful, quote unquote, your ministry is, the more opposition you're likely to face. How has that sort of opposition surfaced itself in your ministry and how have you sought to navigate it? You know, we can say they persecuted our Lord, they'll persecute us. That's true. But also remember the distance between you and the Lord. When Jesus was persecuted, no one ever had a cause to say something bad about Jesus. No one ever had a cause to critique him or criticize him. Never. But here's something that we must remember, at least I must remember. That's not the same case with Paul Washer. I'm not Jesus. I am a man, and I am fallible, and I am prone to error. In the same sermon, godly boldness can turn to carnal brashness. You know, I can look back and see times where I was extremely bold and it was right. Other times when no. We have errors in our speaking. James says that if someone doesn't, they're a perfect man. Even when we try to do what's right, sometimes it doesn't come out right. Pride is an extremely dangerous thing. And when people critique us properly, that is a way to bring down our pride. And even when people are very cruel and slanderous, doing the work of their father, the devil, twisting everything you say, lying about you, that also serves a purpose. I was, it was real funny, I was in this conference on persecution in London with Phil Johnson. We were talking about this, and I said, you know, Phil, I said, when I was in Peru and I had to go into really dangerous places, you know, pull me off a bus, push me around, yell at me, scream at me, or put a gun on me or something, or if someone walked in right now, you know, and just wanted to beat the living daylights out of me, it wouldn't bother me at all. And honestly, it wouldn't. I mean, it, it, that doesn't affect me. I said, what affects me is the slander and the twisting and these fights and these internet people and all these different things. And Phil laughed and he said, well, let's make a deal. He goes, the internet people don't bother me a bit. So if they come at us today, I'll go out front. But if a bunch of men come with clubs, I'm going to stand behind you. And I said, it's a deal. <laughs> You know, so it, it really bothers me. But also, usually when it's really bothering me, then I can ask myself, is this pride? 
This is another reason. And, and you know, everyone calls me, you know, call me Brother Paul or Pastor Paul. I'm an itinerant preacher and I work in world missions under elders. And it's one of the reasons why you need to be in a sound church with biblical elders. Because when someone, you know, on the internet points out something that's horrifically slanderous, You know, some of the elders know how it touches me, and they'll come in and talk to me. Or when something is said about me, and I go, you know what? There's some truth in that. I can go to the elders, and I can say, am I like this? I'm not going to entrust myself to, I guess you call them internet trolls or whatever, but I can entrust myself to godly elders who know my life, my family. They can say, you know, Paul, that don't listen to that. Or Paul, yeah, you need to tone it down a little bit, you know? That is one of the great needs of the day, not just for young men, but for old men. As a matter of fact, I believe that the older we get in the ministry, the more we need godly men around us who will speak into our lives and even rebuke us. Because there's a thing that the old timers used to talk about called the old prophet syndrome. That after you've served the Lord for so many years and fought so many battles and maybe had some victories, pride can enter into where you don't think that the rules that apply to everyone else apply to you. Most of the men who have gone astray, even in Scripture, they did so after fighting great battles for the Lord. And so it's very important to have godly elders around you. And, you know, I meet so many men, they're so strong in the Holy Spirit and according to their giftings. And I need those kind of men. (laughs) You know, it's good to be around them and and see the way they deal with conflict, the way that R.C. Sproul dealt with conflict, the way that Dr. MacArthur or, or Phil Johnson or are so many others. I have my relationship with the Lord. I pray. I believe a man of God ought to be shut up to God. But if it wasn't for my brethren, both alive and dead, both far and near, my local church, my elders that I'm under and everything else, I don't know where I would be. This is not a lone wolf religion. (laughs) Speaking of the need for a man of God to be shut up with God, Apart from scripture, what books, tools, and resources have had the biggest impact on your prayer life? Of course, George Mueller, the autobiography of George Mueller. The other is all the collected works of E.M. Bounds. I never read him without just being biblically convicted. And what I mean by that is, let me say this in kind of a dramatic way, when the devil is the one speaking, or your wayward heart, or some well-meaning but unbiblical Christian is speaking, it will lead to uh, condemnation without hope. When God is speaking, it will lead conviction with, let's start again, let's go, return to me. And when I read E.M. Bounds particularly, I'm struck by, oh, I need to pray more, I've been too busy, or this or that, but it's always an encouraging, okay, let's go, let's start again. So E.M. Bounds has been a great a great blessing. And then the realization, small statements like Bethany Jones, you won't understand my husband Martin, you know, as this expositor and evangelist unless you first understand him as a man of prayer. Charles Spurgeon and the role that prayer played in his life as well as the prayers of the congregation in his preaching. There's this last 15 years, this thing about theology and studying and reading and all this, and that's right. But there hasn't been enough on private prayer and intercession and a biblical view of the power of God. This week, we're leaving you with another cliffhanger. Tune in next time to hear the rest of our conversation with Pastor Washer. In the meantime, visit ministrynetwork.com, where you can talk about this podcast with other believers, access resources, and get exclusive book discounts. 
You can also visit ministrynetwork.com forward slash degree to see the new online offerings available at Westminster Theological Seminary.